questions that matter. <clears throat> questions that matter. That's sort of our topic. And uh, <clears throat> always think about uh, different kind of questions that people are asking uh, that um, are really, really uh, important in life. I, I, uh, one of the questions a lot of people are asking, and it's related, I think, to our subject, is uh, how do you know the truth? Uh, all of this uh, talk about fake news and this kind of news, it's just uh, almost mind-numbing now uh, with the Internet and Twitter and, and all kinds of things. And a lot of people are asking questions, okay, who, who can you trust? What, what source can you trust? How do you determine? Uh, I, I've had students, you know, come to me before and say, well, I, it's true because it's on the Internet. And I went, right, <clears throat> yeah, that's right. That's what Abraham Lincoln said. You know, I told him that. <clears throat> uh, that... So, you know, really having questions that matter, asking the questions like, like, how do I know what the truth is? That's an important question. Another question I've had recently is, is there really such a thing as Sooner Magic? Is there really? Lou <laughs> Ann just looked at yes. Man, I'm thinking, I'm afraid there is. <laughs> maybe, maybe there is. That's a question that matters to me, you know? Uh, I'm like, Wow. Uh, those kind of, and, and of course there are other questions, but I've suggested to you, and I, and I think it's true, that in one way or another, the four questions we're trying to wrestle with is how life is generally lived. And at some time or another, all the time, you're answering one of these four questions. One, maybe you've already answered this one, is there a God? I mean, really, you know, that, that's an important question, and there has to be some conclusion to that. Then, if there is, what kind of God is this? What's the character or the nature of this God? That's really important. And, you know, when we have trouble or difficulty or national disasters and people begin to ask questions, why would God let something like that happen? Really what the question is, is what kind of God is this? What, what, what kind of God is this that we say we believe in? So that's an important question. The third question that we'll be working on later is called, then what does this God expect of me? What, what is there really expected of me on my end? Uh, and then that fourth one, <clears throat> which uh, is, is a really, really big one, is what can I expect from this God? Uh, we'll talk about the, the nature of expectations and how they can be both helpful and very difficult uh, in trying to manage whenever life begins to throw us a curve or life begins to uh, not work out the way we thought. We begin to say, well, now, wait a minute, I, I thought I could expect this. Uh, from God. And so uh, there's, there's some uh, real questions here, I think. I tell my students, in my opinion, I think that every time I teach or every time they teach or every time a pastor preaches or teaches, they're actually, whether they're conscious or not, are revolving around one of those questions. They're operating in one of those areas all the time. And so that's what we're working on. The questions that matter is this <clears throat> here, is what is this God like? What is this God like? really like uh, and that's and that's that's the question that we're going we're going to be operating on and and I we, we've talked about in the last couple of weeks if you're interested on the website they're on the the uh, podcast about uh, incorrect views of God uh, distorted views why, why do we have distorted views and it's my judgment here you, you don't have to agree with this that uh, this statement from William Temple is really kind of the crux of this question when he says, if your conception of God is radically false, then the more devout, that word means religious or serious, you know, the, you know I'm, I'm a serious person, I take this seriously. The more devout you are, the worse it is for you. 
Uh, really, uh, he says, you're opening your soul to be molded by something base. You would much better be an atheist. I, when I read that in graduate school years ago, I'm telling you, I just, it just took my breath away. To think that having an incorrect view of God or a misguided view of God is worse for you than having no view. Because that view that's incorrect or false begins to form, or I would say deform, our view of reality and our view of what life is about. And William Temple, as you might know, is, uh, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England, and where all smart people live. And, uh, you know, I, I've always been suspicious. You know, one of my favorite writers is N.T. Wright, who's the most brilliant New Testament scholar. I think it's a little curious that his initials are N.T., That'll get in the back there. That's, that's really, you know, that, I, I was talking to somebody the other day. I said, we told a joke. And I said, you know, nobody understands that joke but theology nerds. So the, 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 the idea of how this uh, understanding of God, Temple was a brilliant English Archbishop of Canterbury and uh, made these statements to say, look, it's worse if you're devout. It's worse if you're serious. If you're not serious, you're not worried about who God is or you're not concerned about what God is like or not concerned about his nature, it's not that big a deal. But the more devout you are, the more serious you are about this, the worse it can be because you're really getting serious and invested in this matter of who God is and what this God is like. So I've suggested a couple of uh, uh, things here. I just want you to have such a, it's my opinion, it's my view, this picture, we think in pictures generally, that one of the reasons I want to deal with this is because I think without some careful thought about this, there is an erosion of our faith. See this right here where water's kind of eroded this? It isn't cataclysmic all the time, but if our view of God isn't correct or we're, we're wrestling with issues about what God is really like, then there is this kind of erosion of faith that sometimes culminates in some really catastrophic event or some really significant event in our life. And I'm, I'm suggesting we don't want that kind of erosion. What we do in erosion is we always try to put some building blocks back in. We try to put something in of substance to stop the erosion. You see there on those, those uh, uh, blocks there. That's what Becky did in the backyard for us. So <laughs> not really. But if it ever got hap done, it would be Becky. So... I have allergies, remember? Uh, and, but, so, you know, you want something of substance there to stop the erosion. I'm suggesting, I'm just, you know, you don't have to agree with me, but I'm suggesting that what we put in place there is a rethinking or a thinking of a, a correct view of God that, care, that has at least two ideas. Now, I don't have the first one. We're going to get back on the second one. But the first one is, the first we dealt with, well, uh, two weeks ago, was a God who is consistent with the revelation and the person of Jesus Christ. Now, we dealt with that last week. If you're interested, you can go listen to the podcast. Uh, this, this notion of a God who's consistent with the person and revelation of Jesus Christ. He's the final word. There's, anything you and I believe about God has got to go through that grid. Anything. Because he's, he's the final word. We looked there at Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. I won't go back over that, but that's an important feature that anything you believe about God, anything I believe about God has to go through that grid. It cannot stand by itself 
if it is contrary to or different from the full revelation in Jesus Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, in many and various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets, but in these last days is spoken to us by his Son, who is the very nature and image of the living God. So anything we believe about God has got to go through that grid. And anything we believe about God before that in the Old Testament is preliminary. It's partial. It's, it's, it's a, a distinct, but it's partial. Second one, the second one that we're going to work, work on a little bit more today is this uh, view. Is um, <clears throat> By the way, <clears throat> I'm getting ahead of myself here. Uh, this, this scriptural verse here is this, why this is important, I think, is that grace and peace are multiplied to you how? What does it say there? Grace and peace is multiplied to you how? In the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you want grace and peace, what do you need? Knowledge of, of what or who? Of God. Yeah, you, you, need, you and I need knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ. So, so this idea is that this is now the building blocks of this understanding. So what's a suggested view? We ended with this one last week, and I want to just pick it up here for a second. And that is a God who has your best interest at heart. <clears throat> a God who has your best interest at heart. There in Deuteronomy 5.28. If you care to turn there, we'll just look at it. I've got something here. I just, uh, after I left class, I thought, I've got to, I just, I want to talk about it just for a couple of minutes. Go to your table of contents. It's in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy, page 168 in my Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 5. You may have remembered these. If you do, it's good to, good to be reminded me. Reminded, uh, you know, the, that's the whole book of Deuteronomy. It's to tell the law again. It's like, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and do what you ought to do. That's the Deuteronomy. You heard that one? You haven't heard that? That's in Hebrew. That's in the Hebrew. It's Genesis, Exodus, and then do what you ought to do. Um, in, in chapter 5, 28, we did last week. I'll just ask you. Chapter 5, 28, chapter 5, 33, chapter 5, verse 33, and 6, 3, there's a phrase that keeps recurring. God's speaking to Israel saying, I want you to obey me and follow me and do what I said for a particular reason, that it may go well with you. That it may go well with you. <clears throat> that the notion here of God's best interest at heart for us is that God wants us to obey him, not because he's the bully of the block, or not just because he's God, but what is God's motive here for us to obey and to follow him? Huh? That it will go well. With who? Us. That it will go well with us, right? So the idea is, I want you to obey me. I want you. Now, this comes back to the notion that I said before, that until we come to this understanding or belief that God has our best interest at heart, we will find obedience very difficult, especially when it's something we don't want to do. <laughs> if we do want to do, you know, like I decided the other day, I'm going to take a Sabbath. I'm not going to do any work. I wanted to do that, right? Yeah. But, but how about loving your enemy? Anybody up for that? <clears throat> right? So, so the idea is that it becomes very difficult to obey God and if I don't have the sense that he has my best interest at heart, that, that God really wants the best for me, that it will go well with me. I, I said last week, I really don't want to tell you how old I was before I got this straightened out in my own mind. I obeyed God lots of times out of fear and out of a sense of fear and out of the promise of reward. And that, was not, uh, that wasn't uh, very long ago. So the, the idea here is a God who has my best interest. So if I do what God says, what's he say the promise will be? It will what? 
go well with me. And if I don't, the inverse is what? It won't go well with you. It won't go well with you. You see, disobedience to God, it will not go well. This is because God knows how you and I are created and what we need and how life works. And we see that as we get a little older, don't we? That we begin to think, you know, being a person of compassion and mercy is better than being arrogant and proud, right? Being a person that, that gives or is willing to be involved with others is better than a person that isolates themselves and, and stays off. Telling the truth and being a person of integrity and honesty is better than having a bunch of lies you got to keep track of, right? And keep straight. We, we see this, that when we do what God says, it seems, if you will, from a, from a phenomenon, that it goes better in, in that sense. Now, here's what I want to go at. I think on the second sheet or the bottom there, I want to talk about a couple of implications about this. If this is true, this is where I didn't get on, uh, on uh, last Sunday. And this whole point, again, a picture here, this whole idea of obeying God that it may go well with you can be summed up in this. God is saying, do what I say, do what I tell you, don't touch the hot stove. Why? Because I want to destroy all the fun in your life. Because getting burned is so much fun. Right? This is that notion of, of the idea of, you know, why would God say, obey me? Do what I say. Because you're going to get burned. You're, you're going to get burned if you do this stuff. This is not the way the universe works, if you will, for people who want it to go well with them. And so the implication here, if that's true, that, that idea here, I want to suggest something here. Back up. <clears throat> I, want to say, I thought I had it on there. I don't. If I do what God says and it goes well with me, that's God's plan. And if I don't do what God says, it doesn't go well with me. Let me suggest to you something you might want to think about. Here's an implication. I think that's on your slide or on your handout. It's this. This is going to sound crazy, <clears throat> I know, but you know me, so you know the thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders or leadership. Here's what it is. I think I got this somewhere. I got to, no, I, here we go. Well, I'm, I'm behind here. Do you have that quote? Okay. This is the idea that if you don't know the passion that God has for you, you're not going to have much for him. If you don't think he has your best interest at heart, you're going to find it really difficult to obey. I think Mike Bickle's right. You'll never have more passion for God than you know he has for you. You can't live the other way to think, well, I'll have passion for God, so he'll have passion for me. That's not the way it works. 1 John 4 9 says we love. Why? Because he first loved us. So any passion we have for God has got to be consistent with our understanding of his passion for us, that he's saying, hey, Cliff, I want things to go well with you. I want things to go well with you, and I know how this works. Give you an example. Uh, a few years ago, I had a little accident and uh, 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 hit a car and uh, uh, didn't do too much damage to the car, but the, but the air conditioner went out, which I didn't understand. So I took it to the guy. He had to you know, work on the bumper a little bit. And so um, he uh, starts, and I said, I need the air conditioner to fix it. Okay, I'll fix it. So they get the car done, and it's got the body work done, and he says, well, the air conditioner's still not working. And I said, well, let's take it to the dealer. Oh, no, I can figure this out. And I'm going, oh, boy, here we go. 
And so I called him the next day. His air conditioner fixed. No, it's not fixed yet, but I had my friend send me the electrical grid papers from Toyota. I'm thinking, okay, now this is becoming a pride thing with this guy, right? And, and, he, and he, so he's getting the electrical grid and getting all the, and, he, and I'm saying, would you please send it to the dealer, please? And I said, look, I've got AAA. I'm coming over there and stealing my car, okay? <laughs> I'm taking my car back. And I'm, so, so we did. We get it, and we take it back to the dealer, the Toyota dealer. And I called him, and I said, is my car ready? He goes, yeah. I said, how long did it take you to fix it? Two hours. <laughs> Why? They know what they're doing? Why? What are they? They're the manufacturer, right? Okay, they're the manufacturer. They know how this car works. They put it together. They, they know that. Who made you? Okay, does he know how life works? Does he know how it's supposed to work in our lives? Okay, then here's the, here's the payoff on the implication. I think I got this. I, I've been on fall break this week and my brain is... Just let this settle down for a second. If that's true, then sin is not normal for human beings. Just, just, I want that to settle down for a little bit. Normal. I can tell you this from a clinical standpoint. I'm using this from a, I've talked to a couple of doctors about this. Normal is what cells should do. Abnormal is what they can do. Say it again. Normal is what cells should do. They should divide and grow at a certain rate, prescribed by the DNA structure. But what they can do is get out of control. And they begin to replicate and grow at a certain rate, and we call that cancer. You don't start with cancer. You start with good cells, that should divide and grow at a certain rate. But something interrupts that. Something causes a disturbance in that DNA. And they begin to rapidly produce and you get what we call cancer. Is that normal? No. Normal is what they should do. Here's an example. A few years ago when I was 34, I was in Louisiana. And I called my doctor up one day because I'm a bit of a hypochondriac. Um, I felt something go across my heart area like that. First of all, they were surprised I had one. And uh, my dad always told me I had a thumping gizzard, not a heart. <laughs> I didn't know I had one. I thought, well. So anyway, I go to, I go to the doctor and I say, look, I want, I want a stress test. And he said, you put enough stress on people. You don't need that. <laughs> I said, not that one. I need, a, I need a stress test. I want to get a baseline on this thing on what, how my heart is right now. So we did it. You know, I was a runner back then, working on, they put me on this, old, they got me hooked up to all these electrodes, no needles yet, all the electrodes, and, and, I'm, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm on this treadmill, and they're saying, now start walking. I thought, man, this is a joke. I'm a runner, and I'm just walking, you know. And then all of a sudden, it goes, <laughs> and it goes, <laughs> at the end of that, it was like this. <laughs> I've got a hook, and I'm climbing. Now, my doc said, Alan, my doc said this at some point. Okay, we're done. That's good. Everything's normal. Now, again, that's not a word that's usually associated with me. <clears throat> Beth always tells me it's only a setting on the, the washing machine and dryer. <laughs> when he said everything's normal, what was he saying? Huh? Think now. 
Everything's working the way it should. For a 34-year-old man, blood pressure, heart rate, all those kind of things, this is what should be occurring. That's called normal. I just want to press you here a bit to, to, to suggest the idea that there is nothing normal about sin at all. Nothing. It doesn't create health. It doesn't create vitality. It doesn't create life. There's nothing normal about it. And yet we get this in our head. God is saying, don't do this. It'll go well with you because when you don't, Cliff, it's going to be what? Abnormal. You can do it. See, what cells do what they should do is called normal. What they can do is called what? Abnormal. What I should do, obey God, life will go well with me. What I can do is rebel if I want to. Is this making sense? This is I know, a new idea, I'm certain. Because it is contrary to common ideas about the nature of God and the nature of reality. Now let me say it. Hear, hear this. Sin is frequent. It is often. It is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. But it's not normal. I always get a chuckle. Doug was talking about the weather. I talk back to the television, you know, because I'm a teacher. You know? No! Or I'm driving down the road and somebody pulls in front of me and I start telling them how they should drive. And Becky reminds me they can't hear me. But I'm a teacher. Here's where, you, here's where we get confused. Have you ever noticed that on the weather forecast, the weather is never the normal temperature? Anybody but me? <clears throat> I haven't seen it be normal once, and I've lived here 26 years. You know why? You know why? They're misusing the word. It's the average. They take all, take all those numbers and crunch them and say on this day, listen, 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 that's important. You and I have to agree sin is pretty average. But we don't have to accept the notion that it's normal. We don't have to accept that notion. It is not normal. And I think this gets at the crux of when I have to obey God and believe that he has the best interest for me. If I'm still fighting with this idea that sin is normal, that it's just the way things are and the way I have to, you know, and I know I can hear your question. So you're saying, Cliff, we can be perfect. I, just stick with me on this. I'm not talking about some human capacity here. I'm talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and God's life to give us the strength to live a normal Christian life. It's not normal. It's frequent, but it's not normal because it doesn't create anything but death and destruction. The minute sin got introduced into the human family, it produces death, destruction, and all kinds of things. And it is anything but the way we were wired for. We were not wired for this. And so the normal idea, sin's average, it's frequent, it's often. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. But it's not the way we were made to live. It's not the way that brings life to us. It won't go well with us. And the more we participate in it, the worse life will become. Jesus said, I've, or the, the, the writer tells us about Jesus. He came to save us from our sin. Didn't he? But here's the question. Here's the question. 
Or here's the, here, here are the issues that, that are, are, are resident in that idea. He came to save us from our sin. I feel like I put, I've talked about this recently. Maybe you should. For most of us, when we talk about this idea of sin and its power in our life, that we, we, we believe that we'll be saved from the penalty of our sin. We won't go to hell. You know, Jesus died on the cross for us, uh, so we wouldn't go to hell. That's true. But the New Testament, I think, is pretty, pretty clear and, and attempts to argue this or, or, or to declare this notion that when it says, and he shall save, his, you know, uh, Matthew one twenty one, he will save his people from their sin. Is it also possible that what that means, that word from our sin, is also to save us from the power of sin? What kind of power does it have over a follower of Jesus? What, what kind of power? I've asked you to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, There is no temptation taking but such as common to man, and God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted more that you're able, but with every temptation make a way of escape so you can bear up under it. Again, please don't, don't mishear me here. I'm not, I'm not arguing for some perfectionism that we're all perfect. What I'm saying is that we've not talked about this enough to where we've sort of gotten to the point that we almost celebrate our failure. There, there's a point where we need to face our failure. There's also a point where we understand, is what we're talking about normal or abnormal? So is it possible to be saved from our sin includes also the power of it? Jesus said, I've come, or he's come to save us from our sin. The third thing is for sure, I think we'll all agree, is that finally, not preachers think in homiletical terms, so you don't have to have these words, but it's someday... We'll be saved from the presence of sin. Most of us are okay with one and three. <laughs> That's what we hear the most about. Someday we'll go to heaven and sin will be done away with. We don't often hear much about two. <laughs> one and three, we're down with. Here's the question I pose to my students. And I'm, man, I, 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 I'm a little nervous about talking about this because I know there are some type A perfectionistic personalities in here, like me, <laughs> That I, this is not a shame issue. This isn't to knock you down. This is just to raise some questions here about what does it mean that God really does have your best interest at heart? That he, that he really is saying, if you'll, if you'll do what I say, it'll go well with you. That, that we have to at least ask the question, what does that mean? He'll save us from our sin. Is it one or all? So I'm just going to ask you to ask you to consider that this whole notion that God who has our best interest at heart Will, if we believe it, will enable us to actually come to the point that when we have to obey him, we don't feel like it, we will, because we know what he's asking us to do is going to bring normalcy to our lives. This can be selfish <laughs> to say, look, I don't really want to do this. It's not what I would choose, but it's what God clearly has said. But because I believe he has my best interest at heart, I am a little bit self-interested to say it's going to go how for me? Well. well. Does that make sense? I know this is a new thought. My students usually, can you imagine being 18 years old and hearing this? They're like, they're like, oh, Cliff's a heretic. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that Christians don't struggle. I'm not suggesting that Christians don't on occasion sin. I'm simply trying to change your viewpoint of it to realize it's not normal. 
It's not going to help you. It's not going to help me. It's not going to bring life. Does that, does that make sense? I should have probably done the Socrative today because I probably have 50 questions on that one. I'm not arguing for perfection here, except in the way the Bible calls for it. I'm arguing that the Christian life may be a little more, um, what's the word? I like the word virulent, but that's when you get a disease, so I don't like that one. <laughs> My doctor would say, don't use that word, don't use that word. Muscular. It's a little more muscular. This is maybe why Jesus, when he talked about the new life, he talked about being born again, having a new heart, a new spirit, the law written on our heart. So, that's any question? Y'all are, y'all are, I know, yes, Lynn. Great question. Yes. She's asking a really important question that I'm not going to answer. <laughs> I choose, I have the right to do that. <laughs> She's asking because this is the, this is the, the, the nub of it that, that we've been taught and that, that we have been born with a sinful nature, right? That, that we were born, that's why we sin. Um, mostly out of the Psalm and sin did my mother conceive me and bring me forth. Um, I have a few questions about that passage in Psalms, which are these. One, it's poetry. Do we press it to logical end? Two, David said, in sin did my mother conceive me. Does that mean he was an illegitimate birth? You know, some, some guy came through town and she had an affair. Uh, there's several meanings here it could mean. In sin did my mother conceive me. Not, uh, David also says a couple things in that Psalm that aren't true. When he says, uh, against thee and thee only have I sinned, he'd kill Uriah. <laughs> he'd sinned against him. So there, poetry has some features to it to say, we want to be careful here. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't mean. I tell my students all the time, it's true, although it may not be literal. Oh boy, now I scared a bunch of people, I know. <laughs> right? David says, my bones are like water. That isn't literal, it's true. He means he's really tore up. So in poetry, things are true, but they're not literal. So that so let me let me suggest a, a possible way to navigate this. I don't think there's any question that the Bible teaches that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You're going to get my opinion on this now. I, in Romans five, which is often referred to as why we sin, through one man sin into the world and death spread to all men because all men sin, and just like the one trespass, one all all sinned and death passed to all people. I will tell you, if you read that fifth chapter closely, I don't think there's anywhere in the Bible, nowhere in the Bible, and certainly not Romans 5, that tells us why people sin. It just says they do. Never tells you why. Go read it. I mean, read it very carefully. It will not tell you. I said through sin, sin entered through one man and death spread to all men because all sinned. Why? Didn't answer it. So that passage ought to be looked at, Romans 5, carefully, that it never answers the why question. Two, there are two basic responses to this, I think. One is that we are born depraved with a sinful nature. That's a pretty classic explanation, that we're born with the sinful nature depraved, which makes us sinners. Um, uh, there, and there are a lot of variations here on this. Uh, 
um, I would say extreme would say that on one hand would say that as long as you're in this body, you have a sinful nature. You've heard that you have a sinful nature as long as you're in the body. And that, I would say that's a, that this is a very extreme view of that because of the implications of it. If, if I am a sinner because I'm in this body and I'll have this sinful... Have you heard this? Am I, I don't want to overstate it, but you're going to have this sinful nature. Then, then it would be my judgment to say, then what is it that finally releases you from sin? Death. All praise to death. Death is our Savior. Death's what saves us. I don't think many people believe that. I, don't, I, I mean, I'm saying that's an extreme position on this sinful nature. So ultimately, what saves me from the presence of sin is death, not Jesus. He can't pull it off. I, boy, I don't want to say that. I don't want to be unkind. He can't. Because we're in this body, I will tell you this, from a, from a biblical and historical standpoint, this is the actual teaching of Plato, who taught that this soul is housed in a prison called the body. And it's platonic thought, in my opinion, not necessarily biblical teaching. It's Plato. It got pulled in by Augustine and some others. So the other position is we're born with a sinful nature. So what happens at the new birth? What, do we, huh? what, what, what happens at the new birth? We have, we're a new creation. We have a new heart. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you got to be born again. So if we accept that notion that we're born with a sinful nature, there is a strand in theology that says, you're right, but there is something fundamental and cataclysmic, if you will, that occurs at salvation. It isn't just get your sins forgiven. It really is that I now have a new heart. That's what Ezekiel 36, 26 says. I'm going to give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll write my laws in your heart and you'll follow me. So we got a new nature now. Now again, I'm, boy, this is a lot of stuff here. That's a bad question. No. <laughs> the, quest, the, the, the question there is this then. Do I now have two natures? The new nature and the old nature. Now, Paul in Galatians talks about the lust, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And there's that idea of this fight. Uh, I, I'll just tell you what I tell my students. Uh, I, I think that's too schizophrenic for me. It, really, it, it is. It's, it's too schizophrenic for me. I'll tell you why. Because I believe, and I'll go that third position, I think there's only one thing you need in order to sin. I would take this, you can think with Adam and Eve, there's only one thing it takes, a choice. <laughs> That's it. Why did Adam and Eve sin? They did not have a sinful nature. They had a choice. And here it is. This is deep theology right here. Here's the choice. God, not God. That's it. All you have to have is a choice. I don't think you have to have a sinful nature. I think you have to have a choice. I'm a human being created in the image of God with this incredible gift called a measure of freedom 
that makes me create his image. And now I have a choice. Now, I'm influenced by fleshly desires. I'm influenced by a culture. I'm influenced by others. But do I have to? Now, let me give you my position or my thought. This is, a, this is the uh, 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 minority report. <clears throat> I, don't, I don't think human beings are born with something. I think they're born without something. I think they're born without the presence of God at the center of their being. I think we're born empty. And as a consequence, we turn in on ourselves. So the first words we say are me and mine. We are inherently selfish because there's an emptiness here. It's like a sinkhole. It just caves in on itself. Now, some of our imagery when we talk about becoming a Christian, where do we ask Jesus to do what? Come in, come in to my heart. Well, it must not have been there, huh? Who was there? Me. So I'm of the opinion that, that human beings are born without something. And it's the presence of Almighty God who gives you the power to live. And so you turn in on yourself. You, you develop these habits of selfishness. The problem, I think, works that you begin without, but through our choices, we develop a depraved nature. Appetites, habits, perspective. Now we start accumulating something that really begins to fight. Is this making any sense? Because I think this has a lot to do with our understanding again. If God has our best interest at heart, why in the world are we still fighting with this? What's going on? How do we understand this? So the extreme position is you have a sinful nature and the only thing that's ever going to deliver you is, is death. I think that's way too extreme. The other way you have a sinful nature and at, at conversion you get a new nature. And now are you struggling with two? Or in my opinion, you, when, when, when you come to Jesus Christ, there comes now a presence to live inside of me to give you the power to live. That's, that's a long, boy, that's a big question. Because I will tell you, I, I think if I'm, a, if I'm accurate at this, I, you know, um, in, in sports, I'm not talking about football. <laughs> you be quiet, Philip. He just comes up, puts the knife right in me and just turns it. In sports, uh, you talk to teams, if they believe they cannot win, what happens? They don't win, they lose. If we're of such an opinion that we have to sin, or it's beyond any human function in our life that we have to, we will. There is some part here of the mind to say, what is the nature of this God and what has he done to give to me to enable me to live? There's certainly no question that Christians sin and fail and there's remediation for that, no question. All I'm going at, I'm not trying to go at some perfectionistic, you never sin ever again. I'm not talking about that. I've sinned in the last, you know, 12 minutes. No. <laughs> not really. But uh, what I'm saying is to get our minds right about whether or not this experience we call sin is normal, should be surrendered to, and just accepted de facto as the reality of existence. That's what I'm going at, okay? Be, be clear with me here. That's what I'm going at. 
is my mind, is my heart de facto default setting? Sin is inevitable. Uh, you know, uh, uh, God doesn't have my best interest at heart. That's what, that's what I'm going after. So don't, don't take me further than I want to go. Does that make sense? Did I just numb your brain? Huh? I will tell you this, I, I, and I've said this to my students before. Uh, these are issues that have real daily implications. And I would say this is why Paul said we need to renew our minds. You know, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renew Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2. Don't be conformed to this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is it that we can expect? You got me in four now. What is it we can expect from God? What can we expect in this area? So let me ask you this. If you do this, just here, here's an application for it. It's not on your handout here, but this is this. <clears throat> um, would you this week, when you are tempted, and you will be, like all of us, like Jesus was, when you're tempted to do something that is contrary to the will of God, would you at least start the dialogue in yourself to say, do I think this is normal now? This area of rebellion or whatever it is. Do I think this is normal? And if so, why? Why do I think this is normal? This is the way human beings just live. Is this the way I want to live? Or second, ask the question, if in temptation, and you know God wants you another way, or you ask yourself, do I really believe he has my best interest at heart? If I do what he says, is that really the best for me? Ask yourself that. Don't allow temptation just to happen and you kind of get pushed along like in a wave of a, of a river. Stop and say, now wait a minute. If I do this, is this normal? Is this going to create normalcy for me? Or is it going to create havoc? And do I really believe that God has my best interest at heart? And that's the reason he's asking me to do this. Does that make sense? You got to stop it right there at the point of temptation. Okay, I, I, I want to hurry to another one because next week we got something to do. The third one. <clears throat> the third, I think, accurate, more biblical view of God is a God of holy love. This is important from this standpoint. Um, you know, I, I, I like to fly in airplanes and I've always been amazed by them. And I, I think about something. I've got two words here, holy love. I got, I got both these words here because I think it's inaccurate to say God is love. I think it's the word in many ways has been so corrupted that, that it almost doesn't mean anything. Or it means too many things. You know, it's almost got to the point, if you love me, you'll let me. What, you know, yeah. we, We've heard that. That's that kind of sophomoric reasoning. The guys with girls or, you know, a student might come to me and say, you know, uh, I made a bad grade. I thought this was a, a school about grace. And I say, no, it's about grades, not grace. I don't know where you came to. I don't know where you think you are. But this is about grades. Okay. But there's that tension that, that has to be balanced there. Uh, I, I love airplanes. And I've always watched. I, I, I watched a video one time where, where uh, when they were developing the 777, before I went to Israel, I think I mentioned that, um, Listen, I checked everything out about the, I'd never flown over the water before, so I checked everything I could about the airplane. I'm not kidding you. Crash records, uh, how many they have in the world, uh, what's the uh, E-tops on I know what the E-tops are. If you want to really get coached up, come talk to me about that. I know what E-tops is with an airplane. I'm looking at all that, and what amazed me was is the, the strength and flexibility a wing has to have. 
It has to have both those. It can't just have strength or to bust off. When they, when they tested the Boeing 777, they were able to flex that wing 24 feet. Can you imagine that? I mean, oh, when I'm in flying and it's doing this, I'm thinking, we're going down. <laughs> you know, when I see it doing this, we're going down any minute. Right? No, because an airplane wing has to have strength and flexibility. You don't want one. Or the other. I think in this notion about God of holy love, it would be safe to say, I think, that this is the distinguishing characteristic and feature of God. Now, let, me, let me talk about the word holy. <clears throat> the word holy comes from a Hebrew term <clears throat> and a Greek term that means different. I'm going to boil this down. Different. Fundamentally, not common. Not common. The opposite <clears throat> of holy is not unholy or ungodly or sinful. It's common. That's what the opposite of holy is. So a cup, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> dedicated to the work of God becomes holy because it's set apart to him. Nobody else can use it. If it's common, who can use it? Anybody. So, <clears throat> so the idea of this love is set apart kind of love. It's, it's the kind of love that's different. It's set apart. It's not common. And, <clears throat> and I'm going to have to hurry here, but, but, but here's, the, here's the basic understanding of it. God's love is such that it's this. It makes distinctions. Now, I'm going to work with this here for a minute. You see, God's love is not enabling. God's love doesn't say, sure, whatever you want to do, that's fine. God's holy love makes distinctions. It says, nope, that's not good for you. I don't, I don't love you so much, Cliff. You can go and burn your life to the ground. And well, you know, we'll come back and we'll fix it. Holy love is the kind of love that makes distinctions. It, it literally makes the distinction, but what God knows. Now here, here's how it is in my judgment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you because I wrote it. God's love is not common. It's, it makes distinctions in this. It knows no bounds in who it loves. This is how it's not common. It knows no bounds in who he loves. God does not discriminate. He didn't say, well, I love you, but don't love you. He, God's love is other. It's different. It's not common in that it, it makes no distinction in who it loves. By the way, here's where I think, again, this idea of holy set apart. I believe God is holy and set apart in love. I don't think there's anybody in the universe that can love like him. Name him if you can. I don't think there's anybody in the universe that can love like him. He's different. He, he's, he's not just different because he lives somewhere in heaven. He's different because he loves everyone without distinction. Do you know anybody else like that? I don't. So he, he, he is able to love with us. But here is where he does. But he does make distinctions with what is good for us or what is bad for us. He does make that distinction. God's holy love. It's interesting. I've, I've given you these verses and I'm just going to read them to you. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm reading them backwards here because it's interesting. When we say God is love, that's out of 1 John 4, 8. 
And that's a common verse to refer to. God is love. I believe that. I talked about that last week. But do you know what? In 1 John 1, 5, the same grammatical construction is there in the Greek. God is light. And there is no darkness in him at all. What does that speak to? Holiness. Purity. A character that has no darkness in it. Why don't we talk about that one? I'm suggesting we need to put them together. God is a God of holy love. He loves in a way that no one else in the universe does, in that he shows no distinction. There are no bounds to his love. But he also loves in a way that he makes distinction between what is good for you and what is bad for you. You know who else did that? You did, as a parent. You know, I used to come down and say, I want ice cream for breakfast. Can you imagine me on lots more sugar as a junior hire? <clears throat> as a junior hire with no impulse control? <laughs> And my mom, who was a hateful woman, said no. Still got that against her. Why? It's not good for me, not for my teacher either. You know, let's, let's be social. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she didn't do that because you know what? It's not good for me. It's not good. For, she said no. I hate you. I know. Right? Every parent in the world has operated in holy love. And it said, I am willing to withstand your fury because I love you enough to say no. And God is the same way. We want to be careful. I wrote here again that God is not just sentimental about you or sentimental about me. He isn't just interested that I be happy. You know, he's interested that I conform to his character and to his life, and he's willing to make those kinds of distinctions. Do you know, do you know that this is the category in, in many theological books where you know what topic comes in under this idea of God's holy love? His wrath. When you study God's wrath, it comes under the category in systematic theology of God's holy love. That says, I will try to do everything I can to stop you. I'll do everything I can to, 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 to stop you. What, what can I do to, to, to stop you here? I, I remember when I was a kid, my mother, I told you, we lived on North Garfield. I tried to find a picture on Google Maps, couldn't find it. I think they burned our house down. But <clears throat> North Garfield went down through the town, had four lanes of road in it. That was a big deal back in the early, late 50s, early 60s. Now, I wasn't born back, I was born in the 80s, but you know. <laughs> See, I lied. <laughs> uh, so my mom said, don't you ever get out there in the middle of that street. Well, see, I didn't believe my mom had my best interest at heart. She had demonstrated that a few times, but uh, called whippings. And so when she told me that, don't get in the middle of the street, I said, she doesn't like me. You know, I'm going out there. There's got to be a pony or something out there. <laughs> or a roller coaster, I'm sure. So I get out there. And I'm, I'm just staying in the middle of the street. There are four lanes of traffic. People honking. And my, my mom looks out the window. She's talking to my aunt. And she didn't go, oh, Virginia, little Cliffy. He's out in the middle of the street. You know, he's having so much fun. We just want Cliffy to be happy. You know what she did, right? Dropped the phone, ran the middle of the street, grabbed my scrawny little six-year-old arm, 
Now, I'm not suggesting this. I'm not saying to do this. I'm, this, is a, this is a disclaimer. Do not do this at home. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting this. I'm just telling you, this is what happened in 1959 or somewhere in there. I got a whipping for every word that came out of her mouth was another one. I told you from the middle of the street not to, to the porch, not the, not the yard, the porch, right? And I'm at six years old going, stop talking. <laughs> I was a thinker back then. Stop talking. I'm think, there's an association here. I'm Pavlov's dog here. There's a classical, classical conditioning here. Now, now, if you interpret that event... On my end, that looks like what? Wrath. <laughs> right? On my mother's end, what is that? Love. Look, I, I, we just can't turn God and Jesus into some Hallmark card. He's ferocious in his pursuit of you and for your life and mine to be what he wants it to be. He's relentless. There's a song we sing sometimes when it says he wrestles with the sinner. He wrestles with the sinner. He didn't say, well, you know, I'm busy. Uh, you know, too bad. He wrestles with us. That this notion of a God who is relentless and ferocious and fierce, who says, I will not lie down while you get involved in this and you destroy your life. Now, I'm not saying God causes your car to blow up. I'm, I'm saying he'll use your conscience if he can. I'm not saying, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. There, there's, I'm not smart enough to figure, okay, somebody had a car wreck. People say, well, you know, God, I don't believe that. But he'll use your conscience. He'll try to get in there and dig around all that he can. By God's grace, you, you might have some people in your life that love you enough to say, hey, you know what? What you're doing is going to burn you to the ground. Maybe God will use people. And maybe, circum I believe circumstances. I don't believe God's killing people and causing car wrecks and that kind of stuff. But those things happen, don't they? And he might be able to wake you up by saying, hey, look at that. Or whatever's happening. You see, this notion of, of, of holy love that says, I'm going to wrestle with you over this. In one sense, I'm going to fight with you over this. I'm not going to be indifferent to you. I tell you, the, the, the greatest anxiety anybody ought to ever have is if God would be indifferent. In fact, um, Romans does say something here that is related to this. In Romans 1, when it says that uh, these people, he just turn them over to themselves. Wow, that's not good. I'm not that good a manager for me. He turned them over to themselves. Just go ahead. Here's, I think I have this on here because I, I, I want I want to make sure, I, I don't know. I did, I drove from Garden City last night, so who knows what I have. I, I want to, here's, here's a statement I want to end with on this. This holy love idea. See, holiness gives content to love. I'll get you this now. 
Holiness gives content to love. If I say, Brian, I love you and I lie or steal from you, you have every right in the world to say, you don't love me. Why? There's no content here. You can't tell a person you love them and then do contrary to them what's for their good. Holiness gives content to love. If I say I love Becky, then there ought to be some content here of how I act and treat her and respond to her and relate to her. This idea that love is just some kind of emotional, sentimental, romantic, phony, baloney, good time rock and roll stuff isn't going to work anymore. Holiness gives content to love. And second, love gives the character to holiness. Love gives character to holiness. Have you met people like this? I, I don't mean to be unkind, but have you met people that are quote-unquote holy and meaner than a rattlesnake? It's because their holiness does not have love as its character. They're mean. They're vindictive. They're judgmental. They're, they're, they're censorous of everybody and everything. You know, i got several words I'm thinking of right now. I better not say. Why? Because their love, or the, the character of their holiness is not love. So holiness gives content to love. Do you not have every reason to ask a person, if you love me, why are you acting like this? And love gives character to holiness. If my holiness and your holiness isn't demonstrated by love, we got to get that fixed. So God's nature is holy love. So before this week is over, ask yourself this question. Does my love have any holiness in it? Does my love have any holiness in it? Do I just say that, but I act contrary to it? And I might say I love a person, but I treat them very poorly. I mean, I try to serve them. I, I try to use them. So does my, does my holiness have any love in it? Or I'm sorry, does my love have any holiness in it? Or second, does my holiness, did I just say that? Let me back up. Does my love have any holiness in it? I said that, right? Well, I got to go back to work. <laughs> does my love have any holiness in it? Or does my holiness have any love? I think we have to ask both those questions. Does my love have any holiness? It has content. And does my holiness then have any love? Or is it making me mean and restrictive and judgmental? We're not like God when we're like that. <laughs> He's a God of holy love. Well, we didn't get that other one, as you might tell, on the handout. But these questions are good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, it's been good to be here today, to be with our friends, to consider some heavy, deep things. And we're asking, Lord, that we just uh, wouldn't be informed, but we might be transformed by your word, by hopefully understanding it to some more degree. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your life. We need your strength. Be with us in this coming week, we pray in the strong and the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.